0: Behold, the sword of power,
1: Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're discussing Excalibur number 92, I Want You, in which we're compelled to contend with a colossal party crasher with a figurative colossal chip on his shoulder and a literal colossal chip in his spine. And everyone takes a crack at a PSA about toxic masculinity. Excalibur number 92 was originally published in December 1995. And the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Casey Jones on pencils, Joe Rubenstein, W.C. Karani Tom Simons and Mike Miller on inks Arion Lenschuk and Malaby Hughes on colors Richard Starkings on craft; on letters and Suzanne Gaffney on editing Come stand a closer back to the podcast that has suffered through Prometheum exchanges and time streams and time quakes and phalanx covenants and finally arrived here in its final form as a comic co-starring Piotr Rasputin didn't do that right right mav can correct me later i am dr anna papard i love talking about sex and gender and comics and pop culture and also sometimes hellboy over at the twitter account potential scholars i am also kurt wagner's unofficial pr manager and you guys he finally does some stuff in this comic it's been a while he also, wears some cute outfits and models a better masculinity through set outfits and otherwise. I've been looking forward to talking about this one. I am joined as always by Mav. Please reacquaint us with your continuity.
2: It, it, it's Pyotr Nikolovich Rasputin. And... Thank you. <laughs> Hi, um, I, I, I have a bone to pick. I have gone through and I have noticed that you and Andrew have both appeared on Cosmic Geppetto. You've appeared on Protagonist. You've appeared on you know, our friends over at Amazing Nightcrawler. So I've decided I'm going to beat them all up. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna go <laughs> and beat up everybody where you guys have been, despite the fact that I've been on those shows and that I have another show of my own. And so really I'm as guilty as anyone But that's my logic. I just, I've decided to be jealous. And uh, out of nowhere, I'm just attacking everybody. They all listen to this show. You're on notice, I guess. Hi. (laughs) 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 My name is Christopher Maverick. Coming in hot. (laughs) (laughs) I am... (laughs) I'm a teaching assistant professor at University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I am the host of another show called Vox Popcast. I do lots of stuff with sex and gender and comics and movies and TV shows. Um, I'm being goofy today, but I am also looking forward to this episode because I, too, have lots of things to say about about Piotr, which is uh, this is one of my favorite appearances of his. And it might be my favorite Nightcrawler speech in the history of the character i actually i actually think that what happens at the end of this book is excellent and i have been looking forward to it for months actually um so uh, so uh, uh, because i knew it was coming eventually and this is one of the defining moments of excalibur for me and of the x-men mythos so
1: we really we really should be feuding with bad boy of x-men podcasting zachary jenkins who called us out on battle of the atom a couple weeks ago but um we'll we'll save that for another time (laughs) (laughs) yeah i didn't know about this (laughs) (laughs) don't worry about it in a friendly capacity
2: (laughs) no 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 i i wanted i want to do a crossover we will you know we we will have when titans clash i'm calling them out Mm -hmm. right now i'm you know i'm 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 feeling you know froggy today let's go
1: (laughs) (laughs) sure we can make that happen um andrew please reunite us with your storied history
2: I'm
3: pretty sure my storied history is just the history of stories I've read, um, but I'm not mad at that. That's a cool life. I am Dr. J. Andrew DeMann, <laughs> I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, where I've um, just recently been promoted, which is cool. And I'm co-lead of Sequential Scholars, where I haven't been promoted yet. So just crossing my fingers that <laughs> Anna notices my good work and invents a cool new title for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Congratulations
3: I mean... on the other job. <laughs>
1: Yes, seriously, Andrew, Huge congratulations on that. I uh, I found out about that because I told Andrew to keep me posted about what happened. And then I got his text about it while I was teaching my class. And I it, like totally distracted me <laughs> because I was recording the lecture with my phone. And then I was, oh, and then I told my students, I was like, M- my friend just got a job. And they like, we're so happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. warm feelings all around <laughs> i had to i had to pause time to note it got a we job jo-
2: got to keep the job he already has Academia, yes well <laughs> <you>
1: know, <but laughs> it's still still good news and extremely deserved if belated but yes <laughs> um we are joined this week by a fab scholar who should have lots of thoughts on the conflict at the heart of this comic the pod is delighted to welcome dr daniel j connell welcome dan
0: thank you thanks anna
1: We're so happy to have you. I'll tell our listeners a little bit about you and then we'll get into your your origin story and your research and all that stuff. Dr. Daniel J. Connell's specialist area of research pertains to a specific type of toxic masculinity called hypermasculinity, and in particular, the physical representations of this in comic book cinema. Having received his PhD from Brunel University in 2011, Dan has written a range of articles and essays on the topic of hypermasculinity, most notably co-editing and contributing to Toxic Masculinity, Mapping the Monstrous in Our Heroes, published by University Press of Mississippi. We've had your co-editor, Dr. Esther Dadao, on the podcast previously. Dan's research is strongly tethered to the concepts of simulacra put forward by Jean Baudrillard and how this intersects with representations of hypermasculinity on screen. So Dan, obviously, as I just said, we've had Esther on the podcast previously, and we talked about toxic masculinity with her, but I am very eager to hear your take on some of these issues in conversation with this comic. But before we get to that, we got to do your comics origin story. When did you first fall in love with Comics, Dan. yeah
0: so uh, confession time you might have a semi fraud in your midst um I don't, I don't think i would classify myself as a comic scholar more a uh comics on screen so superhero cinema scholar but that is fine yeah um but i mean obviously it was born from uh, a love of comics from a young age but i was one of those typical kids where i don't know you know that scattergun your mum buys you a handful of comics just to shut you up kind of thing (laughs) for a long journey, that kind of thing. So I wasn't really fussy so much. Uh, Certainly in in younger age, it was I would just devour uh, any comic put in front of me. I think probably going to show my age here, but um, certainly when I was going into my formative years, you had some of those series like Nightfall, Death of Superman, for example, coming through. Uh, and I think certainly the early 90s was a very interesting time to be at that age when, when comics was transforming out of the 80s. But I think probably uh, if I was going to look at my teenage years, I think the characters I would most oscillate towards would be Daredevil, Spider-Man, um, but probably not in any coherent fashion. So, so yeah, I, but oddly, I think in adulthood... The one series, and I, I can't even put my finger on it as to to why it stuck with me, but The Walking Dead. Uh, I've, I've followed all of it and read all of the the graphic novels, so can't can't quite p- picture why. I think I must have just been hooked on the concept of uh, a series about zombies that's supposed to never end, even though it, it did. So <laughs> but, yeah, so so <laughs> for, for me, that's my sort of scattergun uh, approach to, to comics. Uh, but, but yeah, that's initially got hooked. I can thank my mum for that.
1: Aww. Well, let me talk, you, talk to you a little bit about your, your academic practice stuff. Like, what made you want to study superhero stuff in an academic capacity? Sure.
0: Um, so I think for me, the, the key thing with comics is the sense of plurality that you get from them. Um, you know, layers of visual representation, different styles, the coda with, within, you know, series of comics uh, and the writing itself. It really does become something where the ownership, of interpretation is passed on to the audience, you know, going back to Bart's death of the, the author. Um, I think even in, say, like a filler episode, like a standard comic, there are these wonderful little moments where themes are placed by the, the writers or, or, or the artists. And, and even sometimes there's potentially happy accidents there where the reader comes to a story from a certain perspective. Uh, and I think, yeah, that, that for me is a real driver for it i think bringing in another academic avenue from it i think growing up we talk about things like multiverses now uh it's quite commonplace right but for, for a kid growing up that concept of uh you know the hugh everett many worlds interpretation of quantum physics it, it really was for me comics are the grand old master of exploring infinite possibilities
1: oh yeah definitely and i mean we've done that so much in the past with with Excalibur and I'm sorry that we didn't have you on back then to talk about the <laughs> multiverse it originated in Marvel comics of course in the pages of Captain Britain so Excalibur you know has a legacy there but um, I want to talk to you more about the toxic masculinity stuff specifically but it's so relevant to this issue that like maybe let's just do the issue summary and then we'll come straight back and, and talk about that because yeah that's what this comic is about and you're just such a perfect guest for it. Alright let's do an issue summary. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, we might warn you away from Pete Wisdom, but we'd never try to stop you from locking lips with him once you'd made up your mind. Just to prove how much we respect your adult ability to make very mature bad decisions, here's a summary of this week's comical events. Excalibur number 92 opens where Excalibur number 91 left off, with pride and wisdom canoodling on the lawn after the raucous bar night on the mainland. But they're not alone. Their smooches are reflected in the dense chrome dome of none other than Piotr Rasputin, a.k.a. Colossus. Kitty goes inside while Wisdom enjoys as a cigarette, at which point Peter, which is what I'm going to call him from now on launches a sophisticated plan to win Kitty back by murdering her current boyfriend. Wisdom doesn't recognize (laughs) Peter he only knows he's getting the crap beat out of him His ribs are shattered, damaging a lung and increasing blood pressure to his brain Wisdom manages to unleash a desperate volley of hot knives that injure Peter's spine slowing him down long enough for reinforcements to arrive in the form of the other members of Excalibur. Megan and Brian knock Colossus out while Kurt and Amanda teleport the wounded to the med lab. Moira reveals to Rain, who's upset about Peter injuries, that the colossal Russian will live, but wisdom may not. Peter wakes up in a cell with a hot pink inhibitor collar adorning his very thick neck and Moira McTiger chewing him out. When she leaves, he finds his old friend Kurt Wagner glowering at him. Kurt gives Peter a talking to about toxic masculinity. But for the sake of their longtime friendship, says he'll do his buddy a solid. They're going to say Peter is under surveillance for neural issues as a cover for his actions and to let him stay with the team. Kurt leaves and Kitty arrives in Peter's cell. She tells her one-time sort of boyfriend that wisdom will live. Peter tries to tell Kitty he cares for her, but Kitty tells him that if he cared, he wouldn't have cheated on her and left. Peter asks if wisdom is good to her and Kitty says he is, thinking just like Peter used to be. Oh, tragedy upon tragedy! I don't know if I'm (laughs) buying it, but we'll see what the rest of us think. Um, Dan, coming to you first for some first impressions on this issue. How are you feeling about this comic? Is there stuff that you're interested to talk about?
0: Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I think I'm probably going to come at this from quite a divergent angle from you guys, but um. For me, I think I would summarise my interest here in four core areas: violence in word and deed, mm-hmm. masculine concepts of ownership, the thorny issue of control over emotions, and what I've termed spin doctoring the patriarchy.
1: Oh, love that! <laughs> love that, Dan. <laughs> I'm talk about that.
0: Yeah. So I-, I think for me, those are the core areas. I mean, would you like to go into it, into some of those now?
1: Let's let's grab some other first impressions and I'll come right back to you with okay. it. Andrew, I think you're pretty hot on this one, Andrew. How are you feeling this week?
3: I'm I'm okay on it. Like, I, I think it's good. You're okay on I, it. I enjoy okay. the dynamics. Cool. I still feel that when you apply that context we've been playing with a little bit of this as like Warren Ellis's author insert project,
1: oh, the yeah. idea
3: of him having to show up Colossus is actually sort of a good way to stay ahead of the fan argument that no, Kitty belongs with Peter. And he's just like, well, no, my insert character is going to take punches from Peter and win a moral battle with Peter and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's still there for me, but the rest of it is good. Uh, again, I think this is a good issue.
1: Yeah, I feel that. I feel you, Andrew. It is. Yeah, we're still putting over Pete. And yeah, that's part of it. Anyway, Mav, how are you feeling about this one? You just said it was your favorite Nightcrawler speech.
2: Uh, it's up there and i i mean i don't think i'm going to be as different from dan as maybe dan thinks i am i uh, i'm pretty much on board with you for all four points and it's one of the things that i like about this i like that this is an issue that shows fair amount of growth from piotr kurt and kitty not necessarily in the ways that we might want them to have grown but like comparing this to now 20-some years of evolution in the X-Men for them, I feel as though there is a lot of very organic character development that can be highlighted from a few things, um, which are decisions both good and bad that all three characters make. While I agree with Andrew on why wisdom is there, I think the organic ways in which Rasputin reacts to it fundamentally like sort of underscore where he is as a as a character at this point and i think sets up for where he's gone since then um the speech that and anna basically gave it during the recap the speech about look you cheated on me how dare you be indignant about this that was never addressed in an adult way she was just hurt because she was a child at the time you know like when when secret wars happens and that's what breaks them up i understand why kitty reacts the way she reacts but she doesn't react as an adult woman this is an adult woman saying you don't own me you don't get to just come back from freaking space and and <laughs> you know, stake your claim. <laughs> yeah. You know that's so. So I like this. I like this a lot. And you know we'll, we'll go into the details. I mean the the uh, the other point that Dan made, which is the um, I don't remember how you phrased it, but but the revisionist the, the revisionist patriarchy here, where coverage oh, the, where the, where cur- the patriarchy. Doctrine, I remember yes. because that's a great
1: yeah. way of putting it.
2: Right. The like that's one of that's one of my favorite things. That's the nuance of Kurt goes from look, you're wrong. I'm going to tell you you're wrong, but for the greater good of my little you know my little friend group, I'm just going to massage the truth here. And I I mean I like that complicated decision that Kurt makes. There's a lot a lot that I just love about this issue. I think this is where I decided that Ellis has something to offer the book. And it's not, you know, because like, I've I've been very careful for the last several weeks to go, okay, not necessarily the decision that I would make, but he's the writer of record and like, let's see where he goes with it. So when he goes here, I'm like, okay, you're telling a story that is interesting that I can, that I can sit back and I can watch this unfold. So that's, so that's what this issue does for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm excited by this one in the sense that we had the melodrama teased at the end of the last issue and mm-hmm you have that here like it goes straight to this very violent fight and you know like oh that's a payoff for that melodrama or whatever but then the whole rest of the issue is just people talking and like that feels very mature in the context of where we are in this genre in this space given a lot of the let's say less than stellar stories we've had leading up to this so in that mm-hmm. sense it definitely feels like a breath of fresh air i definitely want to talk more about kurt's thing which my short hot take on it is that like kurt is not correct but it's very in character and so yeah, that's like, exactly it. he is 100 he is he,
2: well i think he's corrected his motivation he, he is percent wrong yeah his, yes yeah. <laughs> he does absolutely the wrong thing and he should have i mean I like, for him i mean and should yeah. have not no like, I, it's
1: Feels a hundred percent in character, not what I would yes. have done.
2: <laughs> yes,
1: yes. <laughs> anyway, um, I'll come back to you for it, Dan. Um, first, let's talk about toxic masculinity a little bit more. Again, obviously, we talked about this when we talked to Esther, but I'm sure you've got your own take on how we would define that and why it's important to study it. So let's do that first, and then we'll get to we'll get to some of your fabulous points that you're already making about this comic so if you had to give somebody a little summary of what we're talking about when we talk about toxic masculinity what what well of definitions would you go to
0: (laughs) i think i think even the definition that's when things get thrown around the room right so yeah it's interesting because i feel like the issue with toxic masculinity and why it's such a hot bun issue even just saying the phrase is that it's so broad its capacity to be positioned as an assault on all masculinity is very clear, also to be interpreted and internalised as that. So I'm going to say for me, and it's very important to note that this is my view, toxic masculinity for me is where traits of actions historically or culturally defined as being male-oriented or male-dominant are taken to extreme levels. Um, And important to note that's on a sliding scale. The classic example of that, and, and for me as well, the driving trait or component behind toxic behaviours is risk-taking. Risk-taking is not obviously an exclusively masculine trait, but you can say that it has been defined as a behaviour which is culturally more accepted, perhaps even promoted, within masculinity. Um, So if we consider risk-taking on a scale, there's probably a universal truth to say that any risk-taking behaviours on the far end of the scale are a bad idea, i.e. they are toxic. And that means, in essence, if men are more likely to take risks and take far bigger risks, then a scale of risk-taking behaviour is a tenet of measuring toxic masculinity. The problem, the sticky bit of this, is who's the arbiter of the scale? What is the scale? And and all, all of those other thorny questions around it. But it doesn't mean we can't collectively perceive some elements that are toxic and also much likelier to occur within groups that identify as masculine, especially in a heteronormative sense. So that's my two cents worth, but it's not authoritative on it.
1: Well, what are sort of the consequences of toxic masculinity? Like, why is it important to talk about this? Why is it important to unpack this concept in a story like this?
0: Well, I mean, the the impacts of toxic toxic masculinity are profound. It it happens on a personal, cultural, structural, societal level. Um, You know, we're all impacted. by by toxic masculinity, and so I think, for me, what what is fascinating about stories that do try to approach this, even if they're not successful, is to turn around and go, actually, these archetypal uh, characteristics that are laid within the foundations of our culture, let's let's reappraise that, let's take a look at that and dissect it and show you other forms of, of masculinity. And also maybe just put a little critical lens on it. Um, so for me, I think that's where the artistic form is is so important. Because bear in mind, when it comes to toxic masculinity, even the purveyors of toxic masculinity are themselves suffering. You know, <laughs> there are consequences. Going back to the risk taking, you know, if you drive your car really fast, if you drink too much alcohol, there are going to be consequences for you. And, and so really, it's a society wide problem that would be beneficial for absolutely everyone if we could address identify and become more cognizant of what toxic masculinity looks like
1: well let's talk a little bit more about superhero comics specifically like what's your take on the usefulness of like the superhero genre i'll say superhero genre because i know you do comics and film but like what's your take on the value of the superhero genre as a way to look at these things and i mean my two cents about it is that it's both like a place where we see these things exaggerated and typified but then I don't know it can also be a place where you can compare masculinities too I mean in something like a shared superhero universe when you have things like multi-universes with like doppelgangers and everything you can also compare character traits and powers and that can be like an interesting aspect of it too but anyway I'm speaking over you please give me please give me your argument for (laughs) why for why this is interesting to you why superheroes and toxic masculinity
0: no I I, I think it's a really important point that it can be forum for that plurality and challenge i think it's just you know when we talk about hegemonic states what is the hegemonic state if you were to read every western comic in existence yeah. which maybe you guys have done i, I don't know
1: but <laughs> not quite but...
0: <laughs> <laughs> but but what is the stereotypical male form within those pages that's the very interesting question within that what are the characteristics of the masculine characters within that for me talking about me personally what fascinates me is I I see going back to your point Anna about the extremity of comic books it's all about especially from an artistic perspective showing that fantasy uh, and showing you know these wonderful extreme visions uh, along all spectrums in comic books what fascinates me when it comes to superheroes on screen is, you know, we've we've taken that fantasy and we've pulled it down to earth and we've made it real. Uh, and then what are the consequences for making it real? I always go back to, you know, when Steve Rogers comes out of the pod in Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, that would be a pretty banal theme in a comic book, right? But it, it's quite a memorable moment on the screen. Uh, and then what happens? Because... It's one thing to see, say, the form of Colossus in a, in a comic book. Very few people are going to go, I need to look like that. I need to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> when you see it on the screen and you know that's a real human being who looks like that, what, what is the impact there? Yeah. But certainly for me, that's the interesting part is I think comic books have evolved into that plurality of masculinities and, and being able to discuss uh, gender in a more nuanced way. I just don't know with cinema and TV. I think it's getting better in recent years. But certainly, you know, let's say the first few phases of the MCU, for example, um, it, it was, there was a worrying sort of monoculture came for how masculinity was represented.
1: Yeah, no, I take your point there for sure. I, uh, I was talking recently with somebody about how <laughs> everything's always about Lucifer with me, but the uh, Tom, <laughs> Tom Ellis's kind of like workout body transformation in season four of that show makes me sad. And <laughs> it's like, does everybody have to look like this now? I guess it's fine. Whatever. Yeah, um, I don't exactly. really know why Satan needs muscles, but it's fine. Uh, anyway, um, just because you're yeah. Satan,
2: that doesn't mean you, you skip leg day. It's yeah,
1: know. You know, not sure if that's why I found the character attractive, but it's fine. You know, people can do what they want. Um, anyway, yeah, getting back to what we have here. I mean, let's come back to your points about this issue, Dan, because I'm curious, because I mean, you said that you're going a different way than us. So I'm getting the sense that you're sort of unsatisfied with some of the conversations that are going on in this issue. So let's talk about it. And maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. But I'm I'm curious to hear more about your take on it. So walk us through some of those points you brought up earlier.
0: Yeah, sure. So I think, I think for me, it's, I, I'm taking this episode from the uh, perspective of toxic masculinity especially hyper masculinity but also exploring what the reactions are to it as well mm-hmm. so I think for me what I find quite interesting is the, the physical violence element is quite obvious and quite instantaneous uh, uh, as, as we all know but the verbal violence I find quite interesting as well I thought Nightcrawler was quite savage in, in the initial confrontation at the cell and I think in contrast to uh, when the two female characters approach Colossus, I I think there's almost a sense that Nightcrawler is insulted by what uh, Pieter has done uh, as a, a reflection on him, a reflection on his masculinity rather than focus on the impact of the violence. So the two women are talking about what's happened, what he what he did whereas nightcrawler is very much you know it's almost like you're pathetic um and then he again switches to to um the the spin doctoring now what's quite interesting about that is it could be viewed through the prism of the classic tough love and that is often something that is a hallmark of familial toxic masculinity the question i think here uh, and be interesting to hear your takes on it is whether it's an effective treatment against or of, or an extension of toxic masculinity. I think that's the big question for me. Does Nightcrawler help in this scenario, or, or does he hinder it by by the way he approaches the issue?
1: Oh, that's a great question, and I think it's a complicated question because <laughs> we're carrying a lot of baggage for a character like Nightcrawler, like into yeah. a. This, I think the reason I like, I mean, again, I don't want to speak for Andrew and Matt, but I think part of the reason this scene really stands out for Kurt is that he's never like this, and like for him to like say something mean to somebody, it's like I could name like maybe one other time he's ever done this in 45 years, you know, like I mean, it's just so unusual, and so it feels earned in some sense because sometimes sometimes you can't be nice to people because they did something really bad. And like, maybe in this one time he earned it. And that's like, I already feel like I'm, I'm PR managing him. I'm spin doctoring him. I think that that's a fair critique because I totally take your point there. And I really thought that was an astute observation about the way Kurt handles the situation versus how Kitty and Moira handle it. Because like, yeah, he is going for like a mass masculine posturing thing here. And like, it's almost like he's performing mm-hmm. that role because he knows that's what will be effective. And then like, it's funny to me, how quickly he backs down though, because he's like, then he's like, Oh, listen, I get it. You've been through all this stuff. Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I
2: disagree slightly.
1: Okay, go for it.
2: I okay. Um, I agree with you mostly. Uh, so every time where you were like, "Oh, earned um, as a character beat for him," one hundred percent. This is not him. And I think why it matters is Kurt is definitively the nice guy. He's the peacemaker of the X Men. That's what he's been for. You're right, like forty five years. Right. That's his. That's his role. That's his job. And it works out except for in the very rare circumstances where his family his literal family and that's how he considers both Kitty and Peter they are siblings to him and he loves them both equally and now he's torn between them because because his it, like he when he gives that speech to Peter it's essentially the the big brothery version of I'm very disappointed in you, son. Like that's what he's trying to do, right? It's a, it's like it's not that I'm mad; it's that I'm disappointed. He's trying to give that parental speech, and that's what it would be if he were an actual father. But he's not. Like Kurt is maybe two years older than Colossus, and Colossus again is like four years older than Kitty. they there, you know, there. Th- there's age differences, but effectively these are three characters who did a lot of growing up together even though even though kurt would have legally been an adult when they met he would have barely been a a legal adult when they met right like so so they've grown together in a way that he does love them and he sees them as siblings and when he gives that speech he's like i've been thinking of you as a child because you are childish and and he is literally telling him everything that you've done is wrong here you hurt Our kitty, right? Like that's that's what this is about. This is about I don't know how to deal with this because you have hurt our family. You have you have hurt her, you have done something wrong because of your selfishness and you and everything that is wrong. He is acknowledging the problem where it fails, and this is where he is complicit and where he is a hindrance. Um, Dan said, Is he a hindrance or is he helper? He's absolutely a hindrance because Kurt recognizes the toxic masculinity, he calls it out, and then he says. But because it's you, I'm going to wallpaper over it. Had it been the exact opposite situation, had Piotr been the new boyfriend and Wisdom been the old boyfriend and Wisdom came in and like beat the crap out of Kitty's new boyfriend, who is a friend of Kurt's, uh, like somebody who Kurt has a personal relationship with, Kurt would have straight up killed him. Like oh, there's no, yeah, there'd well, be, no. well, not necessarily. <laughs> he would have, well, no, but he would, well, no, I don't mean. Yes, he's not Wolverine. Wolverine would have killed him. But I mean, it, it would have been, it wouldn't, it yeah, wouldn't have yeah, been, it wouldn't have been a. I, I mean, in the Big Brother sets, right? Like, there's no, you get to still be on the team if, if the situations are reversed. He is trying to find a way of, you know, okay, like literally, my brother just tried to kill somebody. And I know my brother was wrong, but he's my brother, so how do we make this go away rather than how do we punish him? Because it, it really, what it's really about is, well, you know, I can't keep the professor from hearing about this. I can't keep Roro and, 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 and Scott from hearing about this, so how can we make this so you can get away with this? I, I want you to know that you did it wrong, but I still have to help you because I love you. And that's where it's at. And it's, it, it is absolutely the wrong decision and absolutely the one that Kurt Wagner makes. <laughs> and th- and that's where I'm at with it, and that's why I love the nuance of it because I because because I don't think it's just performative. I think Kurt is doing the wrong thing, and Kurt knows he's doing the wrong thing. And there are eight people on the planet that Kurt does this wrong thing for, <laughs> and like seven Kurt of them are X Men, that- and one's Amanda.
1: <laughs> I think my slightly different take on it is that Kurt would do this wrong thing for literally everyone on the planet. You think because oh, his really? Kurt's you think he'd toxic- do it for wisdom. Chris- Kurt's toxic trait is forgiveness. <laughs> he forgives oh, everybody. Everybody, yes, he does. Like, name name a supervillain he hasn't forgiven.
2: I think there's forgiving and there's inviting to be on the team and hide yeah. it from the professor, yeah. and that's different. Like, yeah, I like true. I th- I th- think there's a level of you know there's a level of specialness that you get if your name is Kitty, Amanda, Peter, Logan. I guess Auroro, Amanda. I said Amanda. Like, not, I'm not even sure. Like Scott gets it, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> like there's you know he most of the mostly x men yeah, yeah right it's like you know <laughs> Rachel i guess <laughs> you know there's, there's there's like but there's like seven people <laughs> and he's like yeah we're going to we're going to move heaven and earth and just pretend pretend this didn't happen in order to in order to keep the family together in a way that i think is different than just forgiveness because it's not just forgiveness kurt just witnessed this man try to murder someone and he's covering it up because the thing that gets me about this book is the the suspension of disbelief is that Pete wisdom survives this can I like Peter can lift 80 pounds I mean 80 tons. Pete wisdom is a flesh and blood person <laughs> <laughs> you know, he yeah, is, he is a squishy he has he has a laser power he, he has laser powers but he is for all intents and purposes here a human man who was just hit by a semi. He should be dead when Peter punches him that first time and his head spins around three times and like, he should be dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, and, and Peter did that on purpose. And if he had died, Kurt still would have tried to help him cover it up. And I think that's the line <laughs> that makes it that makes it special, that relationship special and toxic, because even though he's doing it out of love, he's enabling Piotr's bad decisions.
0: I was going to say, I, I think there are phases of toxicity in that speech, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. i sort of, I noted it down. It's like the rebuking, uh, which you characterise as sort of a big brother. The confidant. He also is a bit of a narrator. You know, there's an expositional mm-hmm. side to it. Of, yeah, yeah. It is, this Peter learning. or or growing or figuring out himself (laughs) or is Kurt telling him what what the issues are and how he got here Uh, and then finally co-conspirator it is very interesting how quickly that validation and resolution to the conflict occurs Uh, and it's like I I can't tell I got the feeling that almost Kurt was being used as a, a slightly judgmental cipher by the writer for yes. their views on masculinity and this scene was like a catch all I want to cover all of these faces so that we're in no uncertain terms you know we've had all the familial responses to give to to Colossus coming out of this so he's ready for the next scene
1: no absolutely and nightcrawler is often that sort of moral compass character within the x-men i know andrew has written about that on claremont run before that you know if you want to say the moral of the x-men you have kurt say it because he's a reliable narrator of the moral and so he's useful in that role i mean my I, I wanna I want Andrew to comment on it, but like I don't know. It does it just occur to me that the Technet tried to kill them a lot of times and Kurt invited them to live in their house. So I mean, yeah. I'm just saying. I'm yeah. just saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it feels different because I the Technet
2: fought them. Peter attacked an unarmed man. I know. Like the unarmed boyfriend. Like Peter doesn't even know that Pete Wisdom is a mutant. Peter doesn't know that Pete Wisdom he, he doesn't it's not like he sees them and thinks oh he's attacking and I misunderstood it he saw kissy he saw kitty kiss another boy and he tried to break his neck it's bad Mm -hmm. and kurt knows this and there's no ambiguity about it it's not like he's like being mind controlled it's not like he thought that it's not a oh there was a misunderstanding so we're gonna fight and then we'll apologize which is a, a superhero trope the situation here is that peter attacked somebody because he doesn't like the girl he believes he owns having moved on and he even and peter even peter even acknowledges that how could you have forgotten about me why didn't you wait well dude You've been in space. You left, and I like their last appearance when when she, when he left and said, "No, I'm going to go with the acolytes." She kissed him goodbye. It was not ambiguous. But even before that, you know, you guys broke up when she was 14. She's 18 now. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> like it, it's been four years, <laughs> so, and 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 I and that's like I mean, I it's been longer, and but I mean like generously. It's been quite some time since you were a couple couple and you know that, you know, you've, you've, you faked your death. <laughs> like she's, yeah. she's moved on and it would be weird for her not to like, that's why it's like he, he is absolutely making a passionate wrong decision as opposed to a misunderstanding. He understands the situation perfectly and is willing to murder over it
1: yeah no I mean I again I think that there are shades of difference between Kurt acting this way in this instance versus other times where he's forgiven other people but but still I, I just can't I just there's been so many times where I've like wanted Kurt to be mad at people like that horrible like racist bigot guy in the Cloud 9 story and then the next time they see him he's just like you're a good man you're I mean I don't know <laughs> like, yeah. anyway, anyway Andrew I wanted to hear your thoughts about it because you've written about Kurt's sort of contradictory masculinity and sort of like his aspirational like his aspirations after a more quote unquote traditional masculinity on Claremont run before in terms of his veneration of Wolverine. So I was wondering mm. about your take on this scene and this take on the character
3: I actually really like the way that everybody's been reading it so far. Um, I, I like the context map is applying and I, I like the things that Dan is saying about the toxic masculinity component I think what interests me the most about this is how one of the sort of most powerful and I think formative aspects of toxic masculinity is the posturing created by a patriarchal culture in which you don't have to change. You don't have to grow uh, and you can be resistant to those things. So when Kurt's calling Colossus out on that, uh, I, I think that comparison between the two of them, Nightcrawler is a character who's been through a lot and has changed a lot. And we've gotten to witness it in the pages of Excalibur. Uh, And Colossus, who's been through a lot, maybe even more than Kurt, um, and has not grown at all. So having his friend be conscious of that, not parallel, evolution... Uh, And being able to call him out on it and say, no, you need to be self aware, you need to grow and you need to develop. To me, that's a very anti toxic element. And I like that it's in here and then immediately undermined by covering up (laughs) an attempted murder. (laughs) But but I I did really like that component. As at the core of the speech, you, you cut out that last page. And I'm very, very happy. Uh, With Mm -hmm. the way that Kurt confronts Colossus, because I do think it says something about masculinity, and I do like that Kurt's masculinity is framed as the positive masculinity.
2: Oh, do you buy that he would then immediately look the other way because it's, you know, well, yeah, but it's Peter, you know, which is what he does, right? No, I I don't. Promise you, I I, I think that's a
3: stretch. (laughs) I I, I think that's a stretch, and and as you said, Alice is trying to justify it by Colossus has learned his lesson with his sad puppy dog eyes in the cell. Um, But again. (laughs) That's not enough. As we said, Pete should have (laughs) died. He should be in
2: prison. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and, and exactly. peter should
2: be in prison yes
1: <laughs> yeah it's tough because this goes to such a violent place that it is one of those things where it's like uh, it did go too far and you know can there be redemption for your buddy after he goes too far because if this was again a real life situation absolutely not <laughs> absolutely yeah. not i'm giving it like <laughs> leeway because it's a superhero world in which there's magic science that heals people but like absolutely not <laughs> like (laughs) It's outrageous. (laughs) But, like, yeah, I don't know. I have such mixed feelings about it. I mean, I was thinking too, though, about like as a character read thing of it, like this goes beyond the right and wrong of Kurt's actions, but just that I just can't imagine that particular character not forgiving him because it relates to so many of the ways. That he negotiates his identity, you know, as a people pleaser, which relates to his difference and all of those things. And he's just not someone that would be capable of taking that hardline stance because his need to be liked, like, just outweighs so many things. So it just, it, again, it, it feels really in character to me, even though, again, it is not what I would do and I don't think it's what, what Peter deserves. And yet I'm just like, of course, Kurt would do this. Like, he can't afford to lose a friend in his mind. This is someone who yeah. knows him. And accepts him, and he would never give that up because that's so particularly precious to him. That's what
2: mm-hmm. it is for me, but I wonder if, Anna, can you reconcile it against, for you, I mean, literally for you personally, when Brian tried to kill Kurt for, you know, imagining that he was going to kiss his girlfriend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, because Brian, bro- Brian, who is as strong as Colossus, broke Kurt's leg, and, like, the reason Kurt's alive is... That he is, you know, a better fighter than Pete Wisdom, right? Like he was able to stay out of the way and and only get his leg broken rather than his, you know, everything. (laughs) Pete Wisdom, Pete Wisdom can't bounce around and stay out of the way, and so he went squish as opposed to Kurt, which who broke a leg. But like Brian was trying to kill him, and Kurt forgave Brian. Brian's right here, you know, being on the right side of justice, I guess. (laughs)
1: well what I was trying to hint at a little bit is that like Kurt clearly is someone who does aspire to quote unquote traditional masculinity and even toxic masculinity he's got this Errol Flynn fixation right and like you know it's 1995 he knows what an asshole Errol Flynn is (laughs) so I mean he's got this (laughs) element to him and you know I love Nightcrawler as a character who potentially offers other opportunities for like a quote unquote better masculinity a softer masculinity a more empathetic masculinity we've talked about his leadership being more based in empathy. We've talked about his heroism being based in empathy and this being such a wonderful thing about this character. And yet I do think it speaks to the complexity of the character in a good way that he's contradictory about these things. You know, he does have toxic masculine fantasies about rescuing damsels in distress and being the hero of the story and being the swashbuckler. And that's not necessarily a positive role model. And then when I think about the Brian thing, it's like he forgave Brian because part of Kurt's toxic masculinity is that he thought he deserved. deserved. Deserved it. And like he didn't deserve it, but he partly believed that he did. And that's why he let Brian get away with it and wasn't more angry about it. And I think here, you know. you're seeing that again, right? Like, Kurt doesn't completely reject these narratives of toxic masculinity. And I mean, I don't think that that's... I mean, you know, I'm not like here saying Nightcrawler is a perfect character, so it's not why I like him. I like that he's a complicated character, but that's why I like the scene. I think it's a complicated scene because, I mean, it's like what Dan was saying earlier, right? It's like toxic masculinity is a sliding scale. Masculinity is mm-hmm. a huge plural concept. It's not a singular thing. And one of the things I do find really productive about this issue is how we're having, like potentially at least three different versions of toxic masculinity in pete wisdom in kurt wagner in peter rasputin compared and contrasted with each other and they're all different like these guys are all shitty in different ways <laughs> but, like, <laughs> you know it's interesting though and like the ways that they play off each other i think is interesting too like the other question i wanted to ask was like and like maybe i'll put this to dan first is that like do you get the feeling that peter rasputin would have reacted this badly to anybody kissing kitty pride because he brings up specific aspects of like he's a sickly man who was smoking who's kissing kitty pride and is this part of it <laughs> like is that part of the affront to his masculinity that we're being presented with here
0: so i th- i think for me the real the real hallmark is the the text he's tired sorry he's tired frustrated sad lost in pain and shock uh, i think the reference to pete wisdom's physical uh, element is the shock element of it but what's really fascinating is that the comic gives you up from the very nuanced and deep layers of emotional context for, for where colossus is that moment and he expresses it in incandescent rage mm-hmm. and anger and violence and that's it and so i think i think it's an interesting one because you you don't have the context of It's that shocked bit as well, you know, the ellipses, dot, 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 and shot, that could suggest that the extremity of his reaction is nuanced by who he's seeing or or what he's seeing in front of him. But the conditions are still there. Uh, I think where it's particularly toxic is the insinuation that Pieter can't actually manifest his emotions in, in a productive way. And you know, address them. (laughs) So it all just gets expressed as anger, and then there are consequences to that. I I think for me, probably looking at it, it's likely that that response would have occurred no matter what. But there are some little grey area hints that it might have been different. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, totally. I just found it interesting the highlighting of those particular details. Like it's like (laughs) an accurate description of Pete Wisdom, but still. (laughs) I have to say, like, oh man, like, I like Casey as an illustrator, and like, god, he draws people really cute. It's like, that first splash page of like, Pete and Kitty kissing on the lawn and they're reflected in Colossus's head I'm like that is a really cute picture of Pete Wisdom and I was like oh boy <laughs> I would go for him in that particular image he just his, his art his art feels very female gazy to me in like a way that I enjoy you know like men have like large eyes they have pretty hair they have slim bodies they're very soft and curvy and I'm like yeah I don't know I enjoy him as an illustrator and it's part of my enjoyment enjoyment of this issue as well but anyway that's sort of an aside I probably should have saved that for my final thought it helped me it helped me sympathize with Pete a little bit here let me put it that way
0: oh I definitely sympathize with Pete
1: (laughs) yeah well (laughs) (laughs) I mean I was like I don't know would you feel the same way if you've been reading all the Pete issues up to this point but (laughs) but I'm not sure that's a question for another time but he certainly doesn't deserve what happens to him here let's not mess that up but um yeah I don't know maybe let's talk about some of the other exchanges that we have here because I am curious about you know Dan you brought up way that moira and kitty talk to talk to peter a little bit differently than than kurt talks to peter and i do find it interesting that we don't see the conversation which clearly happened between kitty and kurt because it's alluded it's alluded to because kitty's like kurt thinks you're doing this so there's like an implication that kitty and kurt had a conversation about this but it's interesting that that's shunted off panel right in favor of the conversations we do get here and you know it's a comic we're not going to get all the conversations but it's still like you know show Were made, and I was wondering if any of us had thoughts about that. Like, do you want to say more about it, Dan, in terms of what you found differently about the the ways that the women talk to Peter versus the way that Kurt talks to Peter?
0: Sure. I I mean, harking back to obviously the the coverage we just had in terms of the layers of Kurt's conversation, I think he he does this very interesting thing because he is dismantling uh, Colossus uh, through very different strategies throughout his speech. But mm. what's really interesting and the bit for me that probably I would put as categorizing Kurt as engaging in toxic masculinity is he is in control, like he will not relinquish control of it, even mm. the the concept of telling Peter what what's driving him, why things yeah. are wrong. And that's quite interesting, right? Because to a certain extent there's the potential there for that to limit the growth of for him to learn the error of his ways because that's being controlled throughout. Whereas I feel like with the uh, two confrontations with the women, one, you, you've got the sense of actually there's a bit more focus on the event itself and the consequences of it, which is really important in terms of tackling toxic masculinity and especially hyper-masculinity because there is often a very strong disconnect between action and and reaction, Uh, and I think whilst there are moments of what you could characterise as harshness, it it doesn't seem as overt as with Kurt in in the first instance. So I definitely got the sense there that, one, it was a more rationalised type of conversation, and and certainly I think you can see that within um, Pieter's reaction to it. So for me, I think it's really fascinating that they to a certain extent, doubled up on that with the female characters. I think being picky about it, I would have quite liked some variation in that context because it's a little bit too logical cause and effect. And I think one of the really big issues around toxic masculinity that should be addressed is the fact that some people struggle to address it directly. Whereas it seems in this comic, everyone's more than willing to approach the cell bars Uh, and and, you know give it to colossus in terms of what's happened but that's me being very very picky but yeah i would say those are the core differences and i think having the repetition a little bit in terms of that cause and effect conversation strengthens the 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 visual disconnect of those two things
1: Uh, i was interested in the detail of like i mean again it makes sense for dramatic reasons that kitty phases through the bars and goes to him Mm versus kurt doesn't like he stays outside the bars and i'm like yeah you know kurt's got the keys and he can teleport but he doesn't choose to go inside and i mean there would be no practical reason for him to do so i mean like they do touch but they touch through the bars but still that's interesting right in terms of like there's a barrier there it's like they've got this bond but it's like a homosocial masculine bond in which they touch through the bars whereas kitty goes (laughs) like kitty walk wh- phases through the bars breaking that boundary and touches him in a more romantic way and so i mean there's like obvious like gender normative reasons for that but it was still it struck me as such a deliberate choice it, i
2: think it isn't a deliberate choice i want to go back slightly though you mentioned the conversation between kitty and kurt where you know we disagree on this we, and we never, we don't see this conversation but it happened and my first inclination is i do want to see that story but then i realize i don't and the reason i don't is because the masterful thing about i mean i I, i'm interested but this story is uniquely from colossus colossus's perspective he is on Mm. every page we are attached to his shoulder the only reason we get to see the conversation between rain and moira is because colossus is, is unconscious in that room even though he's he might not be cognizant of it we are Entirely following him for the entirety of this story, and I think that matters because, except for that very brief little conversation that Rain has with with Moira, everything else is about how these characters directly interact with Piotr. And what makes that interesting to me is what works with Kitty is she's obviously mad, she feels betrayed, she feels treated like a child, she feels like you don't own me. You just tried to kill my boyfriend, but she can't help that she still loves Colossus. She might not be in love with him, but like that, but that's her first boyfriend, right? It's and, and it's a relationship that she can't let go of. She's never, she knows she's never going to be able to let go of it, and that's why I think that would be ruined a little bit if Kurt had gone into the cell, not just for gender normative reasons, but because Kitty and Peter have to have a more intimate relationship, even if it's over, than Peter. And Kurt can like, I need to see that visually that she's not afraid, you know, this guy's a murderer now, but she's not afraid of being murdered. Not just because of her power. She doesn't even think about it. She just phases through the bars back and forth because She's more being ruled by her emotions and wanting to both, you know, be close to Peter, but also tell him off, even though it's a situation where she's mad at him. I think that that is a subtle detail that matters. Where I think it could have been stronger is I want to see more with Moira. Moira only gets one page to yell at Peter. Moira is a stronger character who can be real real mean when she wants to and she was mad but she wasn't mean and i actually wanted her to be meaner to peter because she's the only person in this story the only real person brian megan amanda don't have real lines in this. story you know they're not they're barely characters in this but of the characters that have actual things to do she's the only one who doesn't have a reason to love peter <laughs> Kurt yeah. Peter literally Kitty. killed her son.
3: <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> right.
2: <that>?
3: Kurt and <laughs> Kitty. Kurt and Kitty love
2: man. love him. Moira tolerates him. Rain loves him as kind of a you know she doesn't know him the way Kurt and Kitty do, but he is still an X Man when she's growing up in the, in the mansion as a new mutant. So there's a love of the you know there's a personal relationship there in a way that Moira doesn't have. And so I am okay with Moira saying, like, I want to see Moira say, if it was up to me, you'd be in the raft right now. You'd be in the vault. Like (laughs) you're, you're here because Kurt is pulling for you. And I don't think you belong to be, I, you know, I think you should be in jail. I think think you should be dead. Like, (laughs) like something like that. I'm saving you because I'm a doctor and it's what I have to do. Like, I want to see that conversation. Mm -hmm. I do have a a slightly different interpretation of the, the kitty
3: going through the bars phase. I think that's actually supposed to be symbolic of Kitty making it very clear that Colossus can't hurt her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Th- that she's, she's overstepped that. Mm-hmm. She, she's literally comfortable phasing through the, the the bars and being in the same room as him. And she he literally can't touch her. And I think mm-hmm. that's where she needs to be. In order to move forward with her relationship with pete and for ellis to be able to move forward with that relationship knowing that she's no longer lingering to anything colossus as a result of him severing that tie with his actions against pete here
0: but there's also a, a scare, was not there in terms of the softening risk so i think am i right in saying yeah moira actually holds on to one of the bars and then kurt puts his hand through the bar and then finally Kissy goes through the bars and it, it also shows a lessening scale of, you know, being nearly murderous to being broken from Peter's perspective, I, I think. I agree. She has to go through the bars to confront, to show that it's not the bars that are protecting her. Yeah,
1: yeah that's totally. a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important, too, because I don't know, like, you can't have Kitty and, and Peter Rasputin, like, going on as people who are on a team together, if like he's a physical threat to her, like there's just such a bad element to that. If she were to be intimidated by him at that level, and you really have to make it clear that that's not the case. So I don't know. It works for me narratively on that level too, but um, I don't know. Let's go yeah. to some final thoughts because I'm sure we each have something that we want to talk about or that we want to circle back to, but um, I'll start with you, Andrew, did you have something that you want to circle back to or something you want to talk about that we haven't got a chance?
3: Uh, I would like to be a literature nerd uh, and point out that the title of this issue is referencing Sam, and agonostes by John, yes. um, which is about a former couple finding forgiveness at a respectable distance so as long as they have a little bit of space between them they don't hate each other anymore that's cool that's a good reference but it's also about a story about how women corrupt and emasculate male heroes which is less good so we could read it with either sort of alliterative component depending on how you want to interpret ellis's work
1: yeah, I mean, the title of the issue is I Want You, but you're referring to, like, the title on the cover. Oh, sorry, the, the issue, cover. Yeah. Which is, like, yeah, yeah, the cover title, which, you know, is a better title than the issue title, as is often the case with comics. But, yeah, thank you for that literary interpretation. That does it certainly complicate our reading of this issue. Why go to that reference? But, you know, whatever. But I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Mav, anything you want to circle back to or anything we didn't get a chance to talk about?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've been been waiting the entire episode. You know what doesn't happen in this issue? There's no Rory Campbell.
1: Oh, um, I know.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rory's not in this book, and oh. and and he should be because last we saw Rory, he was on this very lab table getting like you know getting like emergency surgery from the machines to make sure that he would live from his stupidity getting his leg cut off and. In my dreams, what happened is like Kurt and Amanda teleport Peter and Piotr into the room and they're like, oh, my God. Well, we need space. And they just brush him off the table. He's <laughs> <laughs> <It's laughs> on the floor. He's <laughs> on the oh floor. Just, just get him out the way. And and just want to point out, because um, I'm not going to do this every episode. He's not in next issue either. And he's not the one. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> We've just forgotten about Rory Campbell for a little bit. Yeah. And it's like, uh, ah, oh, well, you know, um, remember when we were like last issue when Moira was like, "Oh, but I've got to be here and I've got to watch out for my patient. It's very important. I can't go out and drinking, but I do like beer, so maybe I will." <laughs> so, so, so that's that's how much thought was put into this.
1: Rory this might this might not around. this might be this might be the only time this phrase passes my lips but on this issue i feel you warren ellis i feel you you just you didn't want him you didn't want him in the book you did not want to write him so you chose not to and i feel you You're
2: just like and just like and, and i think that and because i was waiting i was like is anybody else going to notice does anybody else and i think that like nope. had i not brought it up none of you would have and probably none of our listeners even noticed that Rory is not in this book <laughs> it's just not there
1: that's yeah. my thought yeah no I, I think <laughs> I, I did, did notice too. I just didn't care <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh my final thought is going to be going back to the art again because I, I do really like Casey's art I have Uh, a painting on my wall of Kurt and Amanda that is of artwork from Casey from another issue of Excalibur. And uh, yeah, I just, I liked the visualization of bodies here. There's a lot of contrast between the masculine bodies of Kurt and Peter in the scene where they're having their conversation. Like, he renders Kurt quite small and slight, which I find an interesting decision in terms of the contrast between those characters, but then also what becomes unexpected about the exchange because, you you know, again, regardless of our mileage on Kurt's toxicity in the scene, like he is the one who is imposing a moral order and being quite aggressive in various ways, and yet that's contrasted with his bodily presentation, which is less you know, dominatingly masculine than Peter Rasputin's is. And that contrast of body type feels very deliberate there. It's like sort of, it's a subversion of expectations in some ways that I think makes the scene interesting. And I mean, I'm not saying unproblematic or anything like that. It's not that everybody's behaving well here. It's just one of those instances where, I don't know, when I think about what can be productive about masculinities in the superhero space is again when we have a suggestion of plurality that at least encourages the reader to think about what masculinity means and to me the contrast between Kurt and Peter here Does do that. There's like a reflexivity to it that encourages you to be like, hmm, which version of this do I identify with? Which version is better than the other one? How is it measured in words and bodies and actions and beliefs? And, you know, being encouraged to think through those relationships, I think, has a value to it, even if, as we've all talked about extensively, like Kurt's very much implicated in toxic masculinity here. But still, like the multiple bodies that we have here, and we could talk about Pete's body too, he renders Pete, you know, very slight and very human and very not super heroic in his artwork and that's a very deliberate choice too with how exaggerated he renders peter rasputin's body and like yeah i just found some of that stuff throughout the issue interesting i think the artwork worked very well for this particular issue and i think it added a lot to the story so i just wanted to make sure that we talked about it and um he draws kurt in a really cute turtleneck and really cute skinny jeans which i also appreciated always happy always (laughs) happy to see superheroes in some cute casual clothes um...
0: (laughs) how did you feel about the inhibitor um slightly (laughs) pink inhibitor
1: well i did mention it in the summary so i noticed it (laughs) yeah (laughs) but um i'll come to you dan for the final word on it anything that you would like to circle back to or anything that you'd like to discuss that we didn't get a chance
0: yeah i think i think just a, a couple of things stepping from one side from toxic masculinity um Smoking is a very dangerous habit, clearly. You're liable to be attacked at any moment. And um, people appear to be a lot more honest with you when you're stuck in a cell.
1: These are valuable life lessons.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's the bookmark, the bookend of of this moral, this story. So I've learned something.
1: That's all we can ask for.
0: wing snake skin is this all you've learned Morgana to deal in potions and petty evil
2: and where have your meddling arts brought the world to the edge of ruin
0: I'm worn thin
2: and
1: threadbare
0: I've tried to guide men or meddle in their affairs as you would have it for far too long the time has come
1: All right, we will wrap things up there other than to say, Dan, thank you so very much for aiding and abetting this colossal kickoff of the Colossus era of Excalibur. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of all the fabulous things you do and where they can find you. So if there's somewhere that you would like people to find you online, you can wreck that here, but also wreck your work and projects and remind us of your wonderful book. Anything that you would like our listeners to check out?
0: Sure, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure to take part. Um, so at the moment, I'm busy working on a chapter for a book called Supercultures 3, The Progressive Superhero, uh, which will be published by Intellect, I think it's next year. Um, My chapter is on ultraviolence, hypermasculinity and depravity in the boys. So I've got a lot of ground to cover on that front. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of social media, I'm not hugely active, uh, to be honest with you, but the likeliest place you'll see me pop-up is on podcasts such as these, uh, or in print, or at academic conferences.
1: And wreck your your book a final time, and where can
0: people get it? Yeah, so uh, Toxic Masculinities, Mapping the Monstrous in Our Heroes by the University Press of Mississippi, by me, and the wonderful Esther Down. You can get it from all reputable bookstores. Uh, I'm not going to suggest a preference for which bookstore you go to, online or hard copy. That's absolutely fine. Um, Just, yeah, take a look at it.
1: Yeah, and if people enjoyed our conversation today, there will be chapters about X-Men stuff in that book for them to check out.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, Thank you so, so, so much again, Dan. My pleasure. Next, we will be covering Excalibur Annual number two. Did you forget it existed? So did we, but we've stopped forgetting it existed now, and we're going to be talking about it next week. Three different stories in that one, a Kurt and Amanda story, a Kitty and Douglock and Kurt story, and of course the one everyone's most excited about, a Britannic story featuring Psylocke and the return of Jamie Braddock. We'll have all of that into your ear holes next week. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fab YouTube videos we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find all of that via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another colossal conversation. Thank you, Dan for mapping the monsters with us. Thank you all for listening and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. We are like exactly on